Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Emor this morning, and we are going to begin this morning at chapter 23-22. Are we all there? All right, Rita. Read for us, please. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Adonai, and your God. All right, so we're in the middle of the description of the festival calendar. Uh, where do the festivals happen? What's happening when festivals are happening? Agricultural harvesting. So we are getting the description here of the uh, of the Pesach, and Pesach happens right at which harvest? Spring harvest, the lambing and the right grain harvest. And so it makes sense that this law is put here right after talking about the holiday that celebrates the harvest, right? We're going to throw in there something that has to do with the harvest, a law that has to do with the harvest, and that is when you reap, right? Reaping is bringing in the sheaves. The, the sheaves. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. What are the gleanings? So two two things. One is as your people, your laborers, your day laborers are picking it up, anything that drops stays. And once you've gone over the field and harvested, you can't go back. Because anything that you missed... You know, from picking berries or tomatoes or whatever, anything you miss is part of this law also. You shall leave them for the poor and the gear. Right? We've talked a lot about the gear. You shall leave them for the poor and the gear. Why? Ani Adonai Elohechem. I am your God. I said so. Oh no. That would not happen. That wouldn't happen because all of the poor are ready to go. They are they. So let us remember the most famous illustration of this that we have. What's the most famous illustration of this law that we have? It's a scroll. I'll give you that. What is the most famous example we have of this law and this happening? And it's a, in a scroll. It's in a Megillah. Ruth. Do you remember the story of Ruth? Ruth and Naomi come back from Moab and they are destitute. All of Naomi's sons are dead. Her husband is dead. One of her daughters-in-law goes back because she's Moabite, goes to be with her people. Ruth chooses to stay with her mother-in-law and go back to Israel because Naomi has nothing left for her in Moab. So they go back to Israel, right? And they have nothing. They're destitute. You starve when you have nothing. Especially women. Especially women, unattached to men. This law was being observed. And because this law was being observed, we see Ruth 
go out and walk behind the harvesters and pick up what they drop. So that is why it doesn't go to rats or birds or anyone else because those who don't have are walking very closely behind those who are gleaning, reaping something, right? We don't know these words. <laughs> I know. Hmm? So, um, so she goes behind and that's how she feeds, right? Her and Naomi. And then Boaz sees her and says, who is that? And everyone says, that's Ruth the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Boaz is a cousin of Naomi and says, because of her kindness, make sure you drop lots of sheaves and tell her, I tell the workers to leave her alone and leave her unmolested. Right? So, so what do we learn just from that part of the Megillah? We learned that A, it was not necessarily safe. So this might be a very nice law, and we think, wow, we are such a great people that we had this law, right? Leave her unmolested. Don't, don't touch her. So that means single young women trying to survive out in the field with all of these field workers. I mean, you don't have to stretch your imagination very far to know that probably they were risking, right? Sometimes their safety to do that just like they do everywhere else in the world where women and young girls are sent out to try to forage still. and still and and in Africa going to get water going to get wood this is why the solar cooker project is so important because to go get wood they have to leave so young women have to leave so far from camp that they are often attacked to bring wood back in order to cook. In order to cook and breathe in the smoke that will give them lung cancer that they will die from. So, um, so I mean, it's, it's a terrible, this is the terrible reality of so many people's lives, right? That we don't generally think about. Here in Los Angeles County, the homeless camp was published yesterday, and there's something like 35 to 40% of a rise in homelessness between last year and this year. 35 to 40% rise in homelessness, thank you, between la- from last year to this year. Do we know what the factors are? Um, well, it's something, it's something that, that predates the Trump presidency, so you can't lay it at the door. Because generally it takes several years to go from insecure to homeless. And I think it has to, it has to do with affordable, the lack of affordable housing. But also it appears that there's an influx of homeless people coming in from other parts of the United States. And that there's a, that homeless, that many homeless people are like touring, if you will, to find where they can not staying in one place. Yeah. Also, that's safer. They they less likely to get caught. If they keep moving. Almost well, like gypsies it's, now. But it's uh, it's also harder to um, put down to, roots. To harder to put down roots, and it's, it's not families with children, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily older people either, like people over fifty. It's the, it's from 18 to 50. 
So lest we think this is an issue that that right that is archaic, right? That this it continues to be our struggle. How do we take care of with what we have, right? Those at the edges, those at the margins. So this is called leket and peya. Peya is the corners, right? Think of peyote, peyas, right? Peyas comes from here, the corner. You shall not shave the corner. So it's the same thing here, same word, peyote. You shall not go to the peyote. The rabbis took that and interpreted it. No, no. It says in Torah, you shall not shave the peyote. Um, And leket, right? So that which falls. So peyote and leket, these were two of the ways that, that they instituted what we would think of as food stamps. Right? The difference being... I'm, you know me, I like to ask you. What's the major difference between the way we do it, which is we take money, we give it to an agency, the agency hands out food stamps or hands out, you know, whatever. What's the difference between that and this in There's your mind? There's no middleman. What? There's no middleman. There's no middleman. And no money. There, this was their money, right? Ex- extra, extra uh, food above what you needed was your money. You just get the sense that you're helping yourself. Ha. So this is critical. That there's no middleman. You're not going to face somebody to say, either to beg or to say, I don't have enough money for food. Please give me, right? Because there's an implication there that I don't necessarily deserve it. I certainly didn't earn it. Right, you're, you're going to give it to. So I have to ask you to give it to me. So there's there's that. You have to face somebody and ask. And the other part is that you're you're not doing it yourself. And that is a very big difference. This was an agricultural society, which meant when the harvest time came, everybody was busy with the harvest, except people who didn't get a job in the fields or people who didn't have anything, right? The beauty of this to me is that they went to the fields too. Everybody goes to the field to harvest. And I don't ask for anything. And yes, I know you have to face whoever's field it is. I get that. I'm not saying there's still a stigma. You're still out there. The difference I think in it is, because that's 100% true, I think the difference is you don't ask. Because it is understood it belongs to you. It says it right here. Leviticus 22, a long verse. It says it right here. Ani Adonai Elohechem. What's the implication of I am Adonai your God? It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. You don't get to decide. It all belongs to me. I, God, let you enjoy and encourage you to enjoy 90%. Okay. But the the corners, the edges, and what falls and what's left after the harvest does not belong to you. It belongs to me. Therefore, so even though there's stigma that I'm poor, maybe, I don't ask anybody for it. And you can't reject me because it's mine. It belongs to me. You don't have to prove you're worthy because it's it belongs to you. Oh, here comes George. 
Okay, I'm going to talk about the Muslims. Uh, okay. They have two kinds of begging. One is active, where they'll come out and wash your windshield and active. The other is just sitting with their hand up. And Allah takes care of them, which is very close to what this is. Um, One is God's. Allah's going to uh, take care of me. Uh, anybody want to answer that? I think that we did, they, they actually have to get what they, they're working for what they are receiving. They're not being, it's not a handout. All right, so they're washing your windows. All right, the, the difference. Oh, no, no, but that's the act of begging. Right, that's what she's saying. Yeah. Right, so. But in the field, they're, they're not asking for a handout. They're working for it. Well, George is saying they'll wash your windows. They're working for it. Well, then you're paying them for a job. It's, it's different. Yeah. If when you wash the windows, you may not get paid. They're still an act. Yeah, they're still an act of giving. But really, the other, the other one was the major point. Is that they're a lot of me. They're just sitting. They're not so, so you're saying they perceive it. Huh? They have to beg for it. No. They, they will sit with their hand The extreme in that is just sitting there with their hand up. What, what Sarah's saying is by putting your hand out, you are indicating to people, I'm poor and, and I'm inviting you to give to me. No, but Allah, Allah, your explanation is Allah will take care of them. I understand. So, so there's a perception for them that it's the same as this. Maybe. Yes, that's what I'm Okay. But maybe a, another example would be the Buddhist monks who expect to be fed, and it is law. And they're, they're, they're told that you will be given food by the entire Buddhist community. Right. So the only, the, so great, the lovely. What I'm going to say is this is not directed to the poor. This doesn't say as a poor person you can expect Allah to take care of you. You have a right as a monk to go and get your bowl filled. This is not directed to the beggar, to the poor person. Who is this directed to? Us. The giver. Us, the owner. Us, the consumer. So is it in Buddhism. This this is not right. It's really not about what the poor person thinks or what they're at. Don't worry. It belongs to you. You have every right. It's nowhere in here. You poor people, you have a right to this. God is taking, this is directed to us. Because we're the ones with the problem, not the poor. It just reminds me of what's happening today with the poor children who can't get a school lunch if they don't bring their money. It's, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. They even throw out the food if the kid doesn't pay for it. I mean, it's yep. unbelievable. Right, the horrifying stories of children who, that's the only meal they get. And is it school? hired somebody who bought a bunch for somebody, you know, a, a worker, or that, yeah, that she was, or one that gave some lunches and another that used your own money. It was like, no, no, no. Yep. Right? So, right? Sometimes we kind of skip, okay, read that verse and we move on. But it's like, this is one of those that continues to be, I think, a cornerstone of Jewish understanding of justice. That it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me, says Adonai. And therefore, here's, here's the rule, right? Here are the boundaries around, and we talked about this last week, appetite. Fine, you have an appetite, that's great. 
Here are the boundaries around it, and within those boundaries, enjoy. Does that extend beyond food? Of course. We talked last week, sex. Right? But, I mean, as opposed that you're entitled to it. Um, I don't know if sex would fit into that one. But of course. housing or... You're, we are obligated to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. All right, so, I'm, so we're talking about two different things. I'm talking about appetite and setting boundaries around appetite. And as within the permitted boundaries, you're supposed to enjoy to the edges, right? And fast past that, it's wrong. All right, I saw a hand. No? No? Yes. Just following up on that, do you carry that through to all possessions that are really not ours? Yes. Because that's, that's there would be no need for tzedakah, the concept of tzedakah. It's, it's not ours to give. It is ours to give. It's, it's in our care. We are being given this material wealth. It's in our care. So we're just tenants here. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are tenants. And, and we're obligated. The landlord said... That's it. Your lease is up. Give it away. Beautifully said. The landlord says, you know, you can use, you can take up this much, right? And pass there. That's not your lease. Your lease does not extend to the edges or what's fallen. That belongs to the poor. Then what is tzedakah? Tzedakah comes from the root tzedek. Exactly. It comes from the word tzedek, the root tzedek. Tzedek, kuf. Sadi Dalit Kuf, Tzedek, which is justice, and also it's what we use, uh, often we translate it as, my brain just shut down, righteousness. So someone who behaves in ways that are reflective of justice, right, is a Tzadik. Same root, right? Tzedek, Tzadik. And is, is there no such thing as a charity then? No, there's no such thing as charity. Right. That's yeah. caritas, that's from Latin, yeah. which means the heart. Caritas is your heart moves you to give, that's charity. We don't have a word for charity. We have obligation. We have obligation. We have no word for charity. We have tzedakah, doing that which is just and righteous. There, It's not optional. That is a huge difference with the word charity. And so whenever I do, you know, fundraising, you know, in the interfaith world, when I've emceed big fundraisers, you know, I'm like, for us, ain't no such word as charity. You know, Amy, doesn't exist. Wild, but I got to take this as the first time I ever thought of this that it's an obligation. There is no charity. There is no charity. It's an obligation. If you don't give, you are you are not a good person if you do not follow your. The rabbis go further. If you don't give, based on verses like this, you're stealing from God. Because it doesn't belong to you. And God has told you who it belongs to. Who does it belong to? The poor. So if you don't give it to the poor, you're, and you, you take it and you keep it for yourself. When God says, it's mine, and that amount of it belongs to the poor, you're stealing from God. You know, I can't think of a Jewish charity that doesn't appeal to the different. There's no such concept as this in Jewish charitable fundraising. That, no, I think oh, actually they count on it. Yes, there is. They count on it that, yeah. that we are obligated to give. But I'm saying this is a charitable act. 
Right, because we because we have because we speak English, right? So there's no there's kind of no way around it that it's a charitable organization and and it's in the tax code, um, right? A 501c3. Um, so so we kind of have to use the word. We're stuck with it because our language is based you know on another language that. That is not Hebrew, but um, but for Jews, I think Jews really—it's one of the few things I feel like whether Jews are quote religious, right or not, whatever whatever that means, um, whether they are observant or not. I think it's one of those things that's Kishka Judaism. I think Jews get this somehow. I don't know how, but Jews get this that that tzedakah is. Is an obligation. It's not optional. It's uh, so. It's the right thing to do. It's we, it's beyond. Yes, it's the right thing to do. And we have. Oh, well, this is this is one of the major concerns of the last two generations. And one of the major concerns of the last two generations is the value. The values. If you if you grow up with Jewish values, this they've. They've shown is one of them that, right? That people who who grow up in a house where Jewish values are important, secular doesn't religious doesn't matter. This seems to be one of the values that holds, or that's dominant, right? However, we have found that philanthropic Judaism does not pass from generation to generation. If, the, in other words, if the only if if your main Jewish commitment is philanthropy, that does not pass to the children. Right. So I write checks, I go to Hadassah meetings, I volunteer at the hospital, I go to this fundraiser, I'm the chairperson of the board for that fundraiser, blah, 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 blah. That does not transmit. But aren't you modeling that behavior? It does not transmit. Yes, you're modeling the behavior. It, they have shown it does not transmit. Yes. To that. I yes. Was just at a retreat in Ann Arbor, and after dinner, they had invited three young Jewish women who had grown up in Michigan and, and who had made a choice, much to their parents' chagrin, to move back to Detroit, inner city, and to work to revitalize Detroit and to work with those people. And to to and they were getting you can feel in their kishkas the joy that they were getting. And I have met many young people, twenty, thirty something. Maybe they're not giving so much from their pocketbook because maybe they don't have the means yet. But boy, their boots are on the ground. Right, and that, so I'm. I, I do not want to misspeak. Good. I do not want to misspeak. <laughs> I'm not saying that modeling behavior does not have an impact on the next generation. I'm not suggesting that. If your Judaism is all philanthropy, that Judaism does not transmit. You don't raise up a generation who go, we're Jewish, so we're going to be at Hadassah. We're Jewish, so we're going to go to Detroit and work in the inner city. We're Jewish, and so that means I need to give. Whatever way that is, it doesn't translate. If I give, and I'm a philanthropic Jew, and I talk at home about values, and I live, and we inculcate these are Jewish values, right? that, that transmits. But because dad wrote a lot of checks and was a big macher, that does not 
the next generation doesn't go, therefore, out of my money or out of my success, I need to give time or boots on the ground or, or, or so much of my wealth, right? They, it, that doesn't seem to transmit, which has a lot of us concerned Right? Because we, of course, we want philanthropic Jews, and we want Jews who, if that's how they attach to Judaism, terrific. That's fabulous. We desperately need that. Right? And we're very concerned that, that we don't see that when the children inherit the wealth, we are not seeing the same level, not, not anywhere close to the level of giving. That's, that's exactly right. We need to be doing planned giving way better. When at bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, a child is encouraged to take on a project that's philanthropic, that's a terrific marriage of Jewish tradition and philanthropy. That's why we do it, yeah. right? We say you're becoming bar and bat mitzvah. It can't be just about you and a party and even celebrating that you're 13 and going to be Jewish. Yes, that's all lovely. And because you're now the age of responsibility, the first thing we ask you to do as you become the age of majority is to give back. And everyone has the capacity to do that. We do not. We actually tell them we would prefer it not be about money. We prefer it be your time. Your talent, your energy, your idea, your bake sale, you know, your, that you, because then they get it that they, even they who don't have huge bank accounts or a bank account at all, they can give. And when I got here, that was called their mitzvah project. What's it called now? Tzedakah project. Because I said, yes, they're doing a mitzvah, but like they're always supposed to be doing mitzvahs. And like, what they're going to do one mitzvah, and now they're right, right there, bar mitzvah. They do one big mitzvah, and like, and Chaim didn't like it either. That like they just do a mitzvah this day, or what? And I said, because it's not a, it's, we're not asking them to do a mitzvah project. We're asking them to do a tzedakah project and practice, and practice as they become bar and bat mitzvah that they realize the first obligation is. Right. So maybe uh, our, our, our form of government is counting us. Well, it's what you what you lift up is the you know everything has you know a positive and a negative, a blessing and a challenge. Right. The blessing of assimilation is that we've never before had this kind of freedom and this kind of belonging as full citizens of a country ever in the history of the world. The flip side of assimilating is then Jews. D- don't feel the same obligation, right, to take care of other Jews and or Jewish institutions, right? So that, right, this is the flip side of assimilation and the values of individualized lives, right? The individual becomes what is primary, 
rather than the community. So all of those things that, that make this a wonderful, amazing country for Jews also really challenges Jewish communal institutions and the Jewish, you know, and contributing to my grandfather. If the shul needed a roof, my grandparents didn't take a vacation. That, that was how it was, right? If the shul needed something, it was called sacrificial giving that they gave to the level where it hurt. And even if they had to give something up, they made sure the shul had new plumbing, right? And for most Jews in America, by the generation that I am, that is absolutely not how it's understood. We have so many requests constantly for giving because there's so many needs in our community and in our world. And does the 10% of the, the field have any effect on the amount that we're expected to give? We have to make choices all the time. Tithing. But yes, tithing is what they call it. it are we expected to give 10% or is the number irrelevant? Expected by whom? By the law. What, what percent are we, are we obligated to return? According to Torah law, 10%. Okay. But according to Torah law, there's a lot of things that we have reconstructed. Right? So, yeah, sure, at least 10%. Um, but is that realistic? I don't know. Right? We still have it, to say no sometimes. Well, of course we have to say no. Of course. That, the question isn't, I don't think it really matters who you say yes to and who you say no to. It really doesn't. As long as you're giving, you make your best choices. We all make the best choices we can. Of course we have to say no. The question is, are we giving to our capacity? And I can tell you in my case, no. No. I, I don't give as much as I could. I could give more. I don't give really till it hurts. Really? Returning to the discussion between the parent and the child at the bar mitzvah about mitzvah time, it probably goes when the father says you have to do Zadaka. The famous quote from the kid is, but why? Mm-hmm. But why? What is the parent, and I'm not dealing with the Orthodox community, what is this community that you're I don't want to be depressing and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I mean it. I think if the kid is asking why at 13, it's too late. Okay. It, right. If you, if you say you need to give, when I said to my daughter, when you get gifts, you are going to give half to your college savings. But why? And she knows because oh. we value an education. She knows she's going to have an education, and I don't make enough money to say I'm going to pay for that, right? I, I will as much as I. But we're putting half towards your education. Half you can keep, and and half of what you keep goes to tzedakah. But why? Had she turned to me and said why, I've not done my job. Right. Now okay. she said I don't want to. I said that's too bad, <laughs> right? But she did not say why. Is this the disease of the liberal Jew? Is it? It's the disease of liberal America. Forget liberal. It's the disease of America. It's the disease of the West. It's the disease of wealth. Which, by the way, is why this is here. Because this was written for a people that was doing well. Right. Right? Like that. And so... The landowner. And so if a kid says to me, if they're three and they say why... I can be like, well, how does it feel for you when Johnny has a cupcake and you don't have one? 
or Johnny has a bologna sandwich and you're hungry and you don't have one, how does that feel? We teach empathy. We teach, we teach the value experientially. If they get to 13 and do not have a concept of why we give to those who have less than us, I believe you've missed the boat. I, I want to uh, say something. Uh-huh. I think whenever somebody says why, it means that they're ready to understand better. And I would not dismiss it at all. I want to tell you about my granddaughter's bat mitzvah and her project. And what she chose was to raise money for people who had to be hospitalized with high blood pressure when they were pregnant because they would lose their baby because that happened to her mother. And that's what she chose. I think that's so fantastic. Of course. And maybe she didn't have an idea in her head like that. No, 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 That Let me not misspeak. I, that is not what I meant. Why should I give to that charity? Of course we have to explain why that. That's what I have them do. I have them explain. Don't just tell them what you're doing. Tell them why it's important. They may not know, right? But if someone says, why do I have to give tzedakah at 13? If they have, that's all I meant. If, if they have no internal understanding that that's what we do we give we share what we have with those who have less or have things i don't know about but i know that it's scary to them if they don't if they have to ask why should i have to do that we we have not taught them by 13 empathy people naturally have empathy we are born with empathy right unless that is crushed Right? Most of us, I think, get why I have to give back. Right? Like, and if we encourage that, they certainly get it. And I guess what I'm saying is if if by 13, they, they, what are you going to tell them rationally as an explanation for why you have to give some of what you have to somebody? Like, do do you know what I mean? Like, if if they don't get that, I'm concerned about that 13 year old. Like, truly. Yes. Um, I'm not sure now. Since we went off into that topic, it's what I had to say was relevant. But I was, I was going back to thinking about assimilation mm-hmm. and Jewish community and what happened at Marquette's Charter School. Yeah. The beginning of April. Yeah. You know what happened? Yeah. The, that's the swastika. So what? What? Yes. Where do we want to so go? I, I, it was such an, a shocking experience to. <clears throat> Because we think anti-Semitism's gone? Because I think we're an assimilated community. So we think anti-Semitism is yes. not going to touch us. Yes. Right. Yes. So right. So that's, some people say, like, anti-Semitism keeps the Jews together. Right? So, all right. So let's go to, quickly. I want to make it even more confusing. Oh, good, George. Thank you. Thank you. You're going to make it more confusing for us. Great. The boards of Jewish Family Service are organizations like that fight about whether their money should only go to Jews or to go to the community at large because that's good for the Jews. And I think that's a major issue. I I know an executive director who was fired over that that issue. And it is a very interesting question. Do we give to the temple? 
well, the point is, is it just the Jewish studies or Jewish causes, or is it for the greater community? And it's a major issue in assimilation and what the goals are. Absolutely, which is what Judith was saying. We we get so many requests. How do we figure out who to say yes to and who to say no to? And what proportion, right? We have that fight in this building all the time. All the time. That more and more people are less getting to Judaism. All I hear him saying is that it's complicated. How do you make those choices? Who who makes those choices? And on what grounds? What criteria do we use? Right here, there's always a, an, an ongoing argument about there's not enough tikkun olam for Jews. We do too much tikkun olam for everybody else, and not enough for Jews. And then other people push back with tikkun olam is about the olam. It's about the world. It's not about just Jews. And well, we're not saying just Jews. We're saying a higher per- like so. That conversation is going on here all the time. Yes. Does the Torah say anything about what is the best um, category of, of tzedakah? Yes. No. 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 The answer is no. The Bible does not say anything about that. The rabbis have lots to say, but not about medical versus housing. Absolutely not. What the what the rabbis care about is how you give and how you protect the dignity of the people who are receiving. The, the, Maimonides has the, what is it, 12? The 12 levels, no, 13 principles. 12 levels of giving tzedakah. Look it up on Google, go to myjewishlearning.com and look it up. And I, I won't go, I won't go into the whole thing because it's too long, but the highest way of giving for Maimonides is you give anonymously and the person receives anonymously. The person doesn't know who's giving, and the person giving does not know who's receiving. And then it goes down from there. Not down, but you know the levels go. So that's what the rabbis care about. How we give, sometimes a percentage, how much percentage do we give? They do not generally weigh housing versus education. There isn't a lot of, that I know of, there's not a lot of discussion about that. It's that there are basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, education, those should be funded by the community for the poor, including uh, if a community has a bride who doesn't have enough money for a dress, the community should is obligated to buy the bride a wedding dress. Like so there it's dignity of the poor that they seem to care about and the and the character of the person giving. How how do we develop a good we can't just give, right? I mean, of course we should just give. Giving is better than not giving. But how we give and, and what it develops in us is is what they're more concerned with. We have that argument regularly, too. My husband will see like about $50 million to L.A. County Museum of Art. And then he gets upset. He goes, that should not go to the art. That should go someplace else. But that's not in the Torah or in the Bible or anything. No. He just, just says, someone likes the artist. He, right, it's up. I mean, I think Torah might say, if people are starving, you have to address that before you address art. But we live in a complex enough economy, I believe, that it's not quite a one-to-one ratio like that, right? We don't live in communities where, okay, now I know everybody here and their children has enough to eat. Now let's talk about a museum. It's just not the world we live in, right? And with so many things under threat that we value, 
I think in liberal Judaism, we would say it's really up to the individual and us as a community to decide what our values are. And if somebody believes $50 million should go to art over anything else, it's their money. Okay. Do I necessarily agree with that? But you know what I'm saying? It's so complex and so complicated now that it's just not as easy as saying it should go to hunger instead. Hunger where? How? Right? You know, and, um, okay. So I want to move on to, uh, 23. Verse 23. Okay. I spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe You shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. You shall not work at your occupations, and you shall and you shall bring an offering to, by fire to Adonai. What day is this? Oh, come on, y'all. Of course, Shoshana, of course. Blasts. Yom Truah. Blasts. Truah. This, there it is. Okay. On the first day of what month? Mm-hmm. Anybody want to remind us what the issue is here? On the first day of the seventh month? How could it be the beginning of the year? How can it be the beginning of the year if it's the seventh month? Thank you, Rita. Rosh Hashanah is what we call it. That's not what it's called here. Is it? It is not called that anywhere here because it's in the seventh month. Shabbaton. It's a Shabbaton. It's a kind of Shabbat. Zichron Truah. A memorial of Truah. Mikra Kodesh. A time that is Kadosh. That's what we're told. And how do we commemorate it? You shall not work at your occupations and you bring an offering. Okay. That's it. So if it's the seventh month, what's the first month? Nisan and Pesach. The spring was the new year. It's the beginning of life. It's the beginning of everything. Birth. So the spring, we have two calendars in the Torah. New year in the spring and new year in the fall. And because of lots of factors in history, including a place called Babylonia, um, remember that whole exile business? Destruction of the first temple, exile, Jews return, right? They've been exposed to Babylonian culture. Babylonian culture has its new year in the fall. And how do they mark their new year? I know a lot of y'all have been studying with me for a long time, so you know this. How, how do they in Babylonia mark the new year? Oh boy. Okay, so this is so good because it means I can teach the same thing over and over. (laughs) Yay! Um, Job security. They still need me to tell them. Um, So in Babylonia, you mark the, the new year in the fall with the crowning of the king. Just pay attention this October. To the liturgy. That's all you have to do. What is what, what appears all over our liturgy? Yeah. Our, father, our, our father, our king. Right. That's not an accident. 
And does Rosh mean we, more than just kid? We, where the uh, watch my sermon from last year. So, um, <laughs> Rosh, Rosh Hashanah, Shinoi, change. So, I had it, change your head. So, um, so the king is crowned. That's how you celebrate the new year in the fall. So if we have our new year in the fall and we're exposed to Babylonian culture, our reconstruction of that is we crown God as king in the fall. The, hence all that Melech language. So next time we want to reject that language, and I'm not saying we shouldn't challenge hierarchical image, blah, 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 blah. We get a little overattached to, you know, like the... In terms of, it was a reconstruction, right, that was actually a radical statement. We do not recognize any earthly authority as the ultimate authority. We crown the king for sure. But we crown who as king? yud heh That is a radical statement in the ancient world. So it was actually, you know, a very... We say it is so traditional, Melech. Like, oh my God, King, like we're so past that. Okay, okay, maybe we are. But like, but what are we willing to crown as ultimate in our lives? What are we willing to hold up as the ultimate authority in our lives? And if we really go there, my bet is it's still radical. It's still radical. Because right now it ain't yud heh vav It is not yud heh vav It's power. It's money. It's prestige. How big is your house? It's a Tesla. What you, you think about what we really crown as the ultimate guiding authority in our lives, and it usually is not your table of I'm sorry to say, like, and I live in this culture too, I get it, right? But it's, we have to fight all the time and come here and do this to remember that that's how it should be. We should be placing tzedakah at, as, you know, like, as part of, what is going to be our ultimate authority? What's ultimately going to tell us how we spend our money, time, resources, energy, talent, thoughts? Hopefully, those things that we would call godliness of yud heh what yud heh would call us into. If we lived in line with that energy and that source, what would that call us into? Can we crown that on Rosh Hashanah and say, I publicly, openly say that this year I want to live my life in line with that and crown that as ultimate, If we, that is still a radical act, the I believe. Are open. The, the gates are open. All right, 26, God said to Moshe, mark the 10th day of the seventh month as what? The day of atonement. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice self-denial and you shall bring an offering of fire to God. You shall do no work throughout that day for it is a day of atonement. We got the instruction to the priest, didn't we? Of what Aaron is supposed to do on behalf of the shrine, the tabernacle, and to make expiation for his family and for the people. What did the people get? Here's what the people get. It is a day of atonement on which expiation is made on your behalf before Adonai. Because that's what Aaron's going to be busy doing. Risking his life to go into the Kodesh Kedoshim and making expiation for the people. Indeed, any person who does not practice self-denial throughout that day shall be cut off from his kin. So self-denial? How else do the people do this? Whoever does any work throughout that day, I will cause that person to perish from among his people. So self-denial and no work. And it seems to be pretty serious. 
right? Pretty darn serious. Do no work whatever. It is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. It shall be a Shabbat of complete rest to you. And you shall practice self-denial. On the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to even evening, you shall observe this, your Shabbat. All right, so this, this is the Day of Atonement. Self-denial. What does self-denial mean? Fasting. Ah, says who? Aha. <laughs> says the rabbis because we don't get it explained here it doesn't say here what it means right so all this stuff that we're like ooh Torah tells us we can't wear leather uh nope <laughs> Torah says you shall actually press down your nefesh you shall you shall do what Sarah does to Hagar right you should like Oppress your soul on this day. So the rabbis have to come up with what that means. Right? Practically, what does that mean? And so they come up with their list. What's their list? Fasting. Fasting. No, no eating? No sex. No sex. No drinking. No exchange of money. That's that goes with Shabbat. No showering. That's uh, so bathing. So, no eating, no drinking, no sex, no Shaving. bathing. How many are there? Anointing. No anointing, no wearing, no wearing leather, and no wearing gold. Any idea about why no, why no gold? This is not a day. You want to be reminding Yudhevavhe of a little incident in the desert <laughs> called the Golden Calf, right? So, so no gold. Uh, it's not considered exactly proper to stand before God on this day asking for our lives not to have happened to them what we deserve, and then be wearing something we killed. Um, who didn't deserve it, um, right? And also, leather is a sign of luxury. Right, so it's not a day that we're supposed to be, you know, luxuriating in our wealth and our finery. So has it ever been like a, a little guy sent out to the congregation in case you would like to know? So on Yom Kippur, I I didn't know, so I'm not going to wear my diamonds and my you know get on the patch for my <laughs> Well, it's interesting because it's very interesting because if you don't get ungapached for the high holidays, some people are like, "You're not Really? <laughs> this is the holiest that right?" So it's very interesting. If you come here to the sanctuary, people are in white for the most part. Many in tennis shoes. Okay, what I love is when people wear leather tennis shoes. <laughs> I'm like kind of missing the point, <laughs> right? That the canvas tennis shoes are because you don't have any other leather, non-leather shoes. So then people wear leather tennis shoes. I'm like, okay, they're meaning well. They see everyone wearing tennis shoes, so they wear tennis shoes. Um, so, um, but that so it's much. It's been much more inculcated here, right, over the years that that. This is one of the really meaningful for some of us traditions. And in, in Orthodoxy, women don't put on makeup, right? They don't, you know, and since you're not showering, you, you can't do your hair regularly the way you regularly do if you wash your hair every day and dry it, right? So, um, so it's not getting, right? All dressed up. So, um, 
But if you go to our other services, right, it's, it's a very different, culturally it's very different, although more and more people are wearing white as we try to encourage that. But it's a good idea to maybe put it in the bulletin, right, to say, here, here are some ideas for if you just want to try it and see what it's like, right? All right, look at your sheets. I very much apologize that I cannot remember where I got this. I just found it. It's been years and years. I keep a hard folder on every Parsha. So some of my materials go back 20 years when I was ordained. So um, I don't know where it came from. I don't know who the rabbi is. I very much apologize to whoever wrote this. It might be Rabbi Rami Shapiro. It sounds like Rami Shapiro to me. Then then somebody will say plagiarism. (laughs) She did not write that. I wrote that. That's a good idea, Lynn, except then I'd be in jail. So, um, but thank you. For reasons too numerous to examine here, that second paragraph, Judaism has for all too many Jews been reduced to a religion of holy day observances. And that's what we're reading in Emor, right? We just read the liturgical calendar. I didn't read the whole thing. We go from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Hanukkah to Tu Bishvat, etc. Sometimes without ever realizing that there is a deep and challenging ethical life way that demands not only seasonal but daily attention. Perhaps the authors of our Torah sense this would happen and thus inserted ethical passages in the midst of their holy day listings. It was as if they meant to say, don't forget our holy days, but don't imagine that Judaism takes a vacation between them. Being a Jew is a full-time occupation. The harvest of your land. On the surface, Torah is clearly addressing itself to farmers, but the import of this passage goes beyond agricultural concerns. We all plant seeds, nurture new shoots, harvest the results of our labors. Whether we work with soil and seed, paper and pen, numbers, laws, votes, events, animals, peoples, etc., we all plant and reap. The edges of your field. If the field is whatever occupies you, what are the edges? The Torah is advising us not to reap it all. If there is credit to be had, don't take it all for yourself. If there is money to be earned, take care to give some to others. If there are emotions to be stirred, leave room for the feelings of others. Reach, grasp, take, embrace, but not everything. The edges are the extremes. They represent the totality of what we could reap, and we choose not to reap them. But why not? Why not take it all, whatever it happens to be? After all, isn't that what we're taught to do, to take it all? Isn't success limited to those who manage to get it all? Isn't the American way summarized in the statement, you can have it all? Yes, it is. And Judaism offers a different way. When we reap to the edges, we imagine that we own it all. The field is mine and all its fruits. Judaism takes a different view. The edges are where we meet, not boundaries that keep us apart. I don't own the field. I participate in it. I don't rule the land. I nurture it, aid it to bring forth its fruits. But these fruits are not mine. They belong to life, as do I. This is Rami for sure. When we reap to the edges, we forget that we are part of the whole and imagine ourselves to be apart from it. When we leave the edges to others, when we allow the stranger to partake of the fruits of our labor, we enter into a state of belonging a state of mind, heart, and politic that brings us into relation with others. The poor? Who are the poor? Certainly when we are talking about actual fruits and real harvests, the poor are those without food who are allowed to take from our labor that they not go hungry. There are also the poor in spirit 
the downtrodden and oppressed politically, emotionally, and or spiritually. To these two, we leave the edges and the gleanings. There is no us and them. There is only one world, one heart, one spirit. We cannot imagine that the poor are other than ourselves. As long as one goes hungry, no one can pretend to fullness. The freedoms we harvest must be shared. The joy we feel must be shared. The wisdom we discover must be made available to all. The stranger, who is the stranger? All of us at one time or another. Jews are called strangers, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The stranger is to be welcomed into our homes and our hearts as a fellow traveler. How different our communities would be if we saw in the stranger a friend not met, rather than an enemy to be feared. When the stranger comes among us, we are told to leave the gleanings, to open to the stranger a way into the fruits of our community, to allow all who are hungry for food or for compassion, to find in us a generosity and caring that arises not from pity, but from kinship. The stranger is us. A very important message for our time, I believe, um, that... May we continue to stand as a community to open the doors of our country, of our community, to those who are in need to open our hearts to those who hurt and are lonely. May we continue to open our purses to support the causes that we believe uh, will help us live into what Torah calls justice. You have a pile of Jewish journals over there if you're interested in taking one. Usually if I bring them here, you know what that means. Um, so um, I was asked to write a piece for Mother's Day. This was a very difficult piece for me to write. I'm still not sure I did the right thing. Um, but um, I share it with you first because you are my family. So um, this was very hard for me to put out into the universe. So it is page 19. So as you leave, if you like, take one. It's also online. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.